Linda Triathlon Show 256. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Inigo Mujica. Inigo is a sports physiologist. He is an associate professor at the University of Basque Country, and he's an elite triathlon and swimming coach. His research areas include topics such as tapering, recovery, detraining, and overtraining, and uh, through all of his coaching and applied physiology work, he's extremely knowledgeable in how to transfer his scientific knowledge into practical and actionable training and planning insights. And longtime listeners of the show will probably have heard me recommend his book, Endurance Training, Science and Practice, more than once. It is probably my favorite book in all of endurance training, the one that I would answer, uh, have as my answer to my question, what is your favorite book, blog or resource related to triathlon? Uh, so that is a great one that I highly recommend you pick up. And it's also available in an infographic version. So we'll have uh, the links to, to all of that in the show notes. Uh, but uh, let's get into the interview where we will discuss periodization, recovery, tapering, among other things, uh, right after thanking our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration create electrolyte products that you can match to your sweat sodium concentration. So depending on whether you lose a larger, medium or small amount of sodium in your sweat, you can adequately replace that sodium with uh, your fluid intake. So, for example, I use the pH 1500, which contains 1500 milligrams of sodium per liter of fluid because I'm a salty, salty sweater. And uh, yeah, I really need that, especially on hot and long days of training and racing. You can get 15% off your order of Precision Hydration products with the promo code DETTRIATHLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And big thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. Personally, some of my favorite Roka products include, well, the number one is easy. That's the Roka Maverick X2. It's an absolutely amazing wetsuit, and it really does feel like when I put that on, it, uh, it takes me from being an average swimmer to a pretty decent swimmer that can hold my own in those wetsuit legal races. So uh, yeah, just got to learn how to swim really fast without a wetsuit as well for those non-wetsuit legal races, which is a bit of an issue. But uh, that is definitely my number one. But I also love the Gen 2 Elite Aero Tri-Suit, which also has the arms like the arms up technology just like the wetsuits and the their eyewear lines including for example the matador sunglasses and also the rory prescription glasses that i'm using so check out all of roca's products and you can get 20 percent off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash tts now without any further ado let's get into the interview with inigo mujica Welcome to that triathlon show, Inigo. How are you doing this morning? Very good, thank you, Michael. It's uh, great to to have you on. Uh, it's actually you don't maybe know this yet, but I have a question in uh, that I ask most guests, which is, "What is your favorite book, blog, or resource related to triathlon or endurance sports?" A lot of people have recommended 
your book endurance training uh, and that's actually my the one that i recommend when when people send me emails and ask well what is your favorite book so so i have it right here next to me and uh, it's uh, a great great resource but uh, before we get into the topics for today can you give the listeners an introduction of yourself who you are what you've been doing in your career in endurance sports and so on sure um well again i'm inigo mujica uh, I'm a sports physiologist and I'm also a level three swimming and triathlon coach. And I've been involved in elite sports for the past 25 years. I've worked in triathlon, of course, but I've also worked in swimming, in professional football, uh, a bit of rowing, water polo, uh, professional cycling as well. Uh, both as a as a coach, a trainer, and a sports physiologist, and I've also been involved in academia. So I'm associate professor at the University of the Basque Country, and at the moment I'm also associate researcher at uh, Finisterra University in Santiago de Chile. So I've been doing a lot of research uh, in the past couple of decades, and um, published. 140 scientific papers and and a few books and you mentioned one of them endurance training science and practice that is actually a book that i edited it's not a book that i that i wrote um i also wrote a book actually the only book available uh out there about tapering so i'm i'm, I'm a well-known researcher in the topic of uh of tapering and also training, detraining, and a few other things, including recovery, for example. Yeah, we'll get into those both of those topics, recovery and, and tapering uh, as well. Uh, just right now, like, how do you split your time between sort of practical uh, aspects like coaching and uh, the uh, academic side of, of things? Is it 50-50 or is one side heavier than the other? Well, at the moment... Uh most of my time is dedicated to my work as uh, head of sports science and um, support services to performance in the Spanish aquatics. So basically, I'm the sports science coordinator for Spanish aquatics, and, and I have um, input on swimming, open water swimming, uh, water polo, diving and synchronized swimming so that's that's at the moment my main uh, practical occupation and i also do some teaching and lecturing as associate professor at the university of the basque country and then i am invited a lecturer or professor or whatever you want to call it at different master's degrees in different universities in spain and also uh in Chile, as I said before, and at the University of Reykjavik in Iceland. Mm. And, and do you still coach any professional triathletes? Not at the moment, no. Uh, okay. I was I, I finished coaching professional triathletes uh, with Ainoa Murua when she put an end to her professional career. And I've been doing some online coaching to recreational uh, runners, and not many age group triathletes, but I've done some of that in the past too. But at the moment, I'm not coaching any professional triathletes. Okay. 
let's get into our first topic for today, which uh, I want to talk a bit about periodization. You have written about that on uh, on your website a bit, and uh, the, the, basically, let's hear what are your views on periodization, different models like traditional linear, reverse periodization, block periodization, and and how do you choose a good periodization approach? based on uh, different aspects like the athlete profile and their goal events event calendar and even the sport that they're that they're actually doing whether it's triathlon or swimming or or something different well i think periodization is a basic component of the preparation process of any endurance athlete and also any uh, strength or power oriented athlete there has been a lot of confusion about the concept and there has been a lot of criticism on the concepts of periodization but I think that is mostly based on lack of knowledge or or not having an open mind regarding what periodization is or what periodization should be. Um, a lot of people are stuck on the ideas behind periodization that were created in the in the 60s or and the 70s. Um, but the way I understand periodization is simply as a way of organizing your training in a logical sequence that uh, helps athletes to reach a peak at the desired point in time during the season. So once that is clear in our minds that periodization is not something that is uh, static, but is something that is really dynamic, it's a, it's a dynamic approach to the preparation process, uh, how you choose between different periodization models is going to depend on first coaches knowledge and coaches experience and coaches belief secondly on the athletes um, experience and training history and thirdly on the competition calendar so a coach must choose a periodization method depending on his own views or her or her own views regarding the preparation process, but that has been adapted to the experience and the training history of the athlete. So, for instance, as an experienced coach, I would not choose a block periodization approach for a for a junior athlete or even a senior athlete that doesn't have a very solid training history behind. Um, in terms of athletes' training history, I wouldn't choose that block periodization for the beginning of the season, but I would choose it for the later part of the season once there is a solid training block behind. And in terms of competition calendar, I probably wouldn't choose a block periodization, for example, uh, for uh, an athlete who is preparing for one single event, like, for example, uh, an Ironman event at the end of the season or in the middle of the season. On the other hand, if you are preparing an athlete to compete in the World Triathlon Series, then uh, once the competitive season starts and gets going, a block periodization approach might be perfectly suitable for that type of uh, competition calendar. So again, I think it all depends on where you as a coach come from, uh, where your athlete comes from, 
and what type of calendar you are facing in terms of competition. If we uh, make an example here with, uh, let's talk about age group triathletes, and uh, and a typical age grouper might only do maybe a couple of races, uh, and at least if we're talking about somebody focusing on long-distance triathlon, so they might do a half-distance race in, say, May, and then they do an Ironman in September, uh, for example. Uh, and let's say it's somebody who has uh, a decent history as an age group athlete. They've been doing triathlon for four or five years, perhaps, and have done a few half and full distance races before. But uh, they're not a world beater or by by any means. They're, they're still kind of in the middle of the pack or so. Do you, based on that profile and calendar, do you have any opinion on what might be a good a good periodization approach for for that athlete? Well, in that particular example, I would recommend a traditional periodization approach uh, with a general preparation phase, a specific preparation phase, a pre-competition preparation phase, a taper, and then competing for that uh, middle of the season race, and then doing the same type of approach again for the end of the season race. Uh, Once... That said, I would think that if that athlete has uh, stagnated in their progression, let's say an athlete hasn't been improving lately and the, the, the periodization approach that they have been using for the past few years is not longer giving them any improvement, then they can try something else. And in that case, a different approach, like a reverse periodization approach or a block periodization approach, might be a way of mixing up the uh, training stimuli and getting those training and performance benefits that they were no longer getting. So I think that might be a way of uh, giving the, the, the body a new stimulus and finding new adaptations yeah that makes sense and i should have asked this at the beginning perhaps but for listeners that are not familiar by the way can you give a bit of a short definition of what traditional linear periodization is and what reverse periodization is and what block periodization is (laughs) that's a that's a complicated question for a for a quick and dirty summary uh, in traditional periodization, basically you have a target competition down the line, maybe 16 weeks away or 20 weeks away. And the way you approach this is by doing a general periodization phase in which there is little specificity in your training process. Then you have a, a more specific phase uh, in which you try to develop the qualities that are required on, on competition day. Then you focus a little bit more on on intensity as you reduce volume. And then you finally do a a couple of weeks of tapering uh, to maximize the adaptations that you have achieved and get rid of the fatigue that you have accumulated. In a reverse periodization approach, the difference is that you start with uh, much higher intensities and lower volumes. So the idea is that when you are fresh coming out of a recovery phase or a vacation, um, you can go fast because your neuromuscular system is fresh. So you can go fast, but you cannot go long. 
And in that case, you would take advantage of this ability to go fast. Uh, and then as the season goes on, you extend the duration of your ability of going fast. So firstly, you would focus on, on intensity and then you would be filling up your training with more volume and more aerobic base so that you can extend the time uh, that you can maintain a high intensity. And in the block periodization approach, instead of targeting on multiple physiological and technical adaptations simultaneously, uh, in each one of those blocks that are called accumulation, transmutation, and realization, you focus on only a couple of uh, targets. So in the accumulation phase, you would be targeting uh, low intensity and moderate intensity aerobic training and general strength. In the transmutation phase, you would be focusing more on intensive aerobic and lactate production and specific strength. And then in the realization phase, it would be more similar to a, to a taper phase in which you maintain only uh, race specific intensities or even higher intensities and you normally eliminate the strength training for an endurance athlete so the idea is that the accumulation uh, sorry the transmutation phase will allow you to maintain the adaptations that you achieved in the accumulation phase and the realization phase will allow you to maintain the adaptations that you achieved in the transmutation phase, although you are no longer working on the particular training contents that um, characterize each one of those blocks. And, and do you, this is a fascinating uh, uh, question I find. Do you agree with, uh, with that, that you can maintain those, uh, those characteristics, even though you're not focusing on them in, in those blocks? Yes. Because we hear about the principle of reversibility a lot. And yeah, so you agree with that? Yes, you probably can because you are training a lot. <laughs> Even though you are no longer in the accumulation phase, you are doing something different, but uh, that different is usually higher intensity work. And that higher intensity work is somehow compensated also with, uh, with warm up type of training, recovery in between sets, recovery in between repetitions, uh, warm down. So all that work um, is going to help you maintain the adaptations that you achieved in previous blocks. Mm. And, and one of the arguments that is made for block periodization is that for very advanced athletes with, with high abilities, it might be one of the best ways to to really get a strong enough stimulus to to incur adaptations uh, so so is that something so when you have an advanced athlete maybe a professional athlete or or just a very fit uh, amateur athlete uh, how much do you think in one of those blocks that you can focus on some sort of quality work is that something that you commonly do that you might have a block that is relatively short but you really have a concentrated workload of uh, reasonably high high load where it's intensity or or volume and and then you get to the realization phase where perhaps they, they they get to recover a bit and and then see the adaptations but for a limited period of time which might be i don't know a couple of weeks three weeks four weeks they're really doing 
doing a lot of load, uh, a lot of training load. Is that is that how you use it? Yeah, that could be a possibility. But as I always say, there are no recipes. So it all depends on what you are trying to achieve, whether this athlete has uh, stagnated in their progress. And in that case, that block periodization approach, as you described, it might be perfectly suitable. So it all depends on the athlete. It all depends on the competition calendar. It all depends on whether that athlete is still uh, moving forward with a with a more uh, traditional approach or not. Okay, perfect. Uh, so let's uh, move on to discuss recovery a little bit, and uh, there are a couple of different levels of this. So, so perhaps first we can start from a macro level or a seasonal level. Uh, what's your view on how to recover after a season? Uh, basically, have taking an off season, taking some vacation. Uh, yeah, can you elaborate on that? Well, my approach has always been uh, to give the athletes enough recovery so that they can uh, come back to the new season with a fresh mind and also a fresh body. So my approach uh, with Eneko Llanos or Hector Llanos or Ainoa Murua, who are the, the three professional triathletes that I've coached in the past, was always to give them two weeks uh, with no uh, no training at all. So training was forbidden basically for two weeks. Uh, then two weeks of non-specific to triathlon physical activity. So um, hiking in the mountains, uh, surfing, uh, kayaking, any playing tennis, any type of physical activity that they enjoyed doing but that didn't involve uh, swimming, running and, and cycling was allowed for two weeks not only allowed it was recommended for two weeks and then we would slowly get back into training so basically the um, the off season was four weeks with two weeks of no training at all and two weeks of non-triathlon physical activity and would you recommend the same for age groupers that perhaps that don't train the same volumes as these professional athletes do throughout the year or would you have it maybe be a shorter period or what's your opinion on that well my opinion is that athletes who are not so dedicated to their to their sport probably don't need two weeks completely off um, at the end of the season but if they want it if they want to have two weeks completely off why not in their case, losing fitness is not so important as it is in the case of a, of a professional athlete. So it's always it depends, you know. If, if, if an athlete, an age grouper, doesn't feel like training for two, three weeks, well, what's the big deal? It's not a problem. Well, they, they will get fitter. Performance is not so important for them as it is for a professional athlete. So do they want to take two weeks off? take them. Do they want to take four weeks off? Take them. Do they want to take only one week off? Well, then it will be only one week and, and get back to some enjoyable physical activity. So I think in their case, uh, performance is not so important. It is not so crucial as it is for professional athletes. So they can afford more flexibility in their programs. Yeah, from a personal uh from my, my personal experience, I find that uh, from the physical 
recovery side they uh, don't need as much time off but then again i agree that two weeks is something that can, they can easily take and and it won't be a hindrance but i think find that from the psychological side of things uh, many athletes do benefit from taking taking that time off because then the motivation is so high when they when they get back and they can sustain that uh, they can have the training be more sustainable for for the long long months leading up to to the racing season again so so i still think that generally i like i like it when my athletes want to and agree with taking two weeks off at the end of the season but then for some athletes they absolutely can't see themselves doing it and even taking two days off is uh, is a bit of a, a scary situation for them so so well, then we need to adapt things a little bit. If if that's the case, they can do some other type of physical activity that will help them maintain some of the adaptations. But uh, it will take their minds away from from the uh, stress of triathlon competition performance, etc. So if their body is asking them to do some physical activity, well, they can go ahead and and do something else. As I said before, something they enjoy: surfing, kayaking, uh, uh, hiking climbing whatever whatever they enjoy doing yeah uh, and to get back to the professional athletes that you used in your example uh, i assume you're not take, giving them two weeks of no training and then two weeks of other activities just because i mean be, because it they need a four-week vacation it's actually because of uh, having getting the most out of them when they get back to training and, and having them be at their peak when the important races come so you must think that there's a performance benefit in the long term of of doing that making the training more sustainable in a way so uh, so so is that that that's right like you or I, am i correct in saying that that you do think that in the long term you are actually benefiting from taking taking that amount of time off rather than not doing it yeah, I think it's a it's a short term and a long term benefit. Um, professional triathlon requires a lot from from an athlete's body and from an athlete's mind. So I do think that the body benefits from those two weeks completely off. Um, and in in those particular examples that I gave you before, one of the main um, characteristics of those athletes is that they hardly ever were injured for over 10 to 12 years. Uh, if you take the example of Eneko Janos over the 10 years that I, that I coached him, he only had uh, one episode of shin splints and then two episodes of uh, low back pain. That's it in 10 years. And I think, uh, giving him the right amount of training and recovery on a weekly basis on a mesocycle basis and at the end of the and at the end of the season was one of the keys uh, of this resilience against injury in the case of Ainoa Murray it was the same until after London 2012 in 10 years or 9 years of elite triathlon she only had uh, a plantar fasciitis, and and then she had a small problem in her kneecap uh, right before the London Olympics. But it was nine years of full-time professional triathlon with only two injuries, and that's very unusual. And I think one of the reasons for that is correct planning of the training, correct planning of recovery, 
in the short term, the medium term, and the long term, and also the uh, the continuous uh, strength work and core stability work that gives them uh, the, the the resilience that they need to be able to cope with the uh, huge training loads that they have to cope with during the season. Yeah. Let's move down to that sort of mesocycle level recovery. How how are you thinking about that? So, for example, including rest days on some sort of regular basis or just blocks of a few days of uh, very light training load. How, how did you use that, and how do you what what are your thoughts on that? Well, I like to uh, I like to follow uh, traditional periodization. When I'm preparing an athlete for an Ironman event, for example, and in that approach, I normally do three to four weeks of growing training load followed by one week of reduced training load. And I don't have a formula. I don't always go uh, 10%, 10%, 10%, and then a drop of 50%. I don't have a, a, a precise formula. But I try to do something that seems logical to maintain the adaptations during that week at the end of the mesocycle uh, and at the same time give the athlete enough recovery to be fresh, to be able to face the next mesocycle of growing training demands. Uh, so I couldn't give you exact numbers of how much I reduce the training load during the unloading week, but it might be somewhere around 40 to 60 percent compared to the final week of loading within that same mesocycle mm, yeah so so that's quite a significant reduction there uh for sure uh, do you do you also reduce the intensity in that week uh, similarly do, do you still have some maintenance intensity or is it all uh, easy no 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 there is of course some some intensity work in there uh because we know that uh, training intensity is the key factor when you want to maintain training adaptations. So you need to maintain some adaptations. Not that they are going to detrain if they are doing 50% of the usual workload, which is always very high, very high anyway. But uh, if you want to be able to um, tackle the following mesocycle with enough resources, you need to give them the recovery, but you need to keep them uh, fit enough to be able to face the next, uh, the beginning of the following mesocycle. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you think about uh, typical age groupers that are more time restricted and might have time to train, let's say 10 hours uh, on average per week? Uh, for them, it might not be possible to to have that increase in training load throughout a few weeks. And, and then if they reduce the training volume significantly in a, in a deload week, then they're suddenly down to five, six hours of training. Would you do things differently in that scenario? Yes, of course. Uh, if an athlete can only train maximum 10 hours every every week, uh, then you cannot follow that type of progression of uh, of increasing weekly and then decreasing after, at the end of a mesocycle because you would always be stuck by doing uh, six weeks, eight, uh, six hours, eight hours, 10 hours, 
down to 5 hours, and then again 6, 8, 10, and down to 5, and then again 6, 8, 10, as an example. Uh, when, the, when the upper limit is so limited, you probably need to take advantage of all the training time that is available to that athlete and play with the contents in such a way that there is some variation in the training contents, that there is some variation in, in the volume of the different sessions, there is some variation in the intensity of the different sessions. And in that case, it would be very, very important to avoid monotony in the training process. And monotony doesn't mean doing always everything. Monotony means giving them the same training load every single day or almost every single day. That's what monotony uh, refers to. So avoiding monotony but taking advantage of the maximum training availability would be a key factor in that example. Yeah, yeah. The one one example here for the listeners, uh, again from from my coaching, is that playing around with how you structure your uh, your microcycle in terms of classifying days as easy days, intense days, and longer days. So that that's a way that you can you can avoid that monotony. So you can have a couple of days per week. Quite often for me, I would prescribe a Monday and a Friday as a low load day with just some shorter aerobic sessions and then you might have an intense session on a tuesday and a saturday and a long session on a wednesday and a sunday the wednesday one of course might not be a five-hour bike ride for a typical amateur athlete but it can be maybe a two-hour bike ride which is long for a weekday and then you have the first day which can either be a longer aerobic day or an intense day or even split that up into another easy day uh, for the athletes that need more a bit more recovery so so with those sorts of different categorizations and thinking about how you play around with them, you can you can achieve that variation in training and, and avoiding monotony. That sounds like a perfectly reasonable approach to me. And uh, if we go back to the recovery and or go down one more level to how much recovery you would recommend, for example, between intense sessions, so within the training week from day to day, uh, any considerations there that would be important to know about? Yes, it is very important to understand the physiology of intense intense training. Uh, you need to know what happens when you do a very intense and very demanding training session, how your glycogen deposits are depleted, how your neuromuscular system is overloaded, and having that knowledge will guide you towards the uh, necessary recovery in between those type of sessions. So with that knowledge available, you wouldn't plan those sessions uh, within 24 hours. You would at least need 48 hours to be able to, to cope with the next session with enough glycogen in your muscles uh, with uh, sufficient neuromuscular recovery because otherwise the second session is not going to have the required quality. So you need to understand the recovery physiology before you do your training plan for the week. What, what is the time course of neuromuscular recovery? Is it faster or slower than glycogen resynthesis? 
Um, it depends on the on the intensity, but when you do a very high intensity, very demanding uh, session, you are going to need 48 hours to 72 hours before you can do a similar session, and that is going to allow you to do the next session with the with the quality that uh, is required from that type of session. Yeah. And this is another one of my really favorite questions, but also one of the most difficult questions in triathlon coaching. We have three different disciplines uh, within our sport to train for. And, uh, and sometimes it can be, especially like for, for age groupers starting out, I feel it's tempting to try to do a, like some, like a tempo run and a temp and, and then an interval run. And then you do the same on the bike and the swim as well. And suddenly you are all filled up with tons of intensity throughout the week that might not be possible to achieve how how do you view uh, fitting in the the more intense workouts considering that we had three different disciplines to train for the good part of triathlon is that you can be doing something else and it's still uh, sport specific so if you have done if you have done a, a couple of really hard uh, running sessions and and your legs are very very tired obviously you are not going to add on top of that a uh, a very demanding cycling session, but you can go to the pool and do a quite demanding swimming session because you are mostly going to be working with your upper body and you are still doing triathlon specific training. So that's one of the advantages of the sport that you can uh, still do demanding training with a different part of your body and you are still doing uh, sport-specific training. So that allows you to add a little bit more high-intensity training to your uh, to your training cocktail. So so you would say that a triathlete can do a little bit more high-intensity in total compared to a single-sport athlete, generally speaking? That has been my approach over the years, yes. Okay. Um, in, in terms of quantifying recovery, is that something that you've done? Have you used things like HRV, resting heart rate, uh, and or anything else to quantify recovery? Um, I don't uh, really use HRV, heart rate variability, because I don't think the information I get from it is precise enough uh, to guide the training process. I think theoretical knowledge of uh, the different recovery processes should be enough uh, along with other recovery markers, both objective and subjective, to guide your training process. And I think what I can get from other markers is as precise or more precise than trying to guide my training with heart rate variability. So something like uh, morning body mass, morning perception of recovery, perception of fatigue, quality of sleep, duration of sleep, uh, morning heart rate, uh, I think provides us with enough information to be able to guide the training process. Once you have a plan, that will allow you to decide whether the plan can go on as planned or whether you can you, you need to introduce some uh, modifications to your training plan and in that sense both objective and sub subjective markers are important and communication with the athlete is very very important that's going to determine whether the uh, the training can go uh 
as planned or whether you need to introduce some modifications and changes. Mm. When you mentioned morning body mass, is that to get a an esti- estimate of glycogen and hydration status? Uh, is that how you use that? Yes, uh, that's correct. Uh, I think you without the need to measure uh, urine osmolarity or urinary specific gravity, uh, you can have an assessment of the athlete's hydration status just by uh, assessing morning body mass, looking at uh, urine color and, and paying attention to the, to the sensation of thirst of the athlete. And those three things will give you a very good idea of whether the athlete is properly hydrated or not. And then having a, a, a follow-up of body mass is also going to give us information about whether the athlete is maintaining body mass, is increasing body mass, or is decreasing body mass. Uh, And depending on whether that athlete needed to decrease body mass or needed to maintain body mass, that will guide us on whether there is a proper energy balance in, uh, in that athlete. Yeah. Then the next question, and I'm actually going to take two questions here and lump them into one. Uh, what is your opinion on the different recovery modalities slash tools slash gear? So, uh, yeah, things that we need to potentially speed up recovery, but also uh, what's the tr- potential trade-off between speeding up recovery and potentially messing with the adaptive signal from the training? Well, first of all, I would go, I would like to go back to the idea of periodization because uh, when we talk about periodization, we usually think of periodization of training, whereas I'd like to talk about the periodization of preparation. So preparation includes both the training time and the recovery time. So as much as training time needs to be periodized, Recovery time needs to be periodized as well. And in particular, the proactive recovery strategies need to be periodized. So you would need to match what you do during recovery with what you do during training and also with your goals at different points within the season. That means that you are not supposed to be doing Uh, or utilizing the same recovery strategies throughout the entire season. The recovery strategies that you put in place are going to be depending on what training phase you are in, what you are trying to achieve at each point in time within the season. So, for instance, when you are trying to achieve training adaptations, when you are trying to Uh, adapt as much as possible, you might take away the different recovery options. Whereas when you are focusing on performance, then you can add as many recovery options as you can so that the athlete focuses on recovery. Because at that point in time, competition is important. Performance is important. Adaptation is no longer important. So when you are looking for adaptations, you might have an interest in not giving the athlete any recovery tools that might um, add a difficulty to the adaptation process. On the other hand, when you already have the adaptations and what you are trying to achieve is high performance, in that case, 
you are no longer looking for adaptations. Therefore, recovery tools are not going to interfere with the adaptation process. And they are going to give the athlete the capacity to perform better on a subsequent competition. So once we understand that recovery should be periodized along with nutrition, along with uh, training, then we can discuss what kind of recovery strategies have been proven to be useful and what recovery strategies might be useless. All right, so let's get into that. And by the way, uh, when we're talking here about the recovery being part of periodization, that's something that you and several other uh, top experts in the field have co-authored a paper about. So I'll be sure to link to that paper in the show notes for this podcast. Uh, so I think you coined the term integrated um, integrated periodization or some, something like that, if I'm not mistaken. But yes. anyway, we'll have yes. the link to that paper in the show notes. Yes, that's correct. It's uh, the idea of integrated periodization um, uh, consists of integrating what you are doing in training with what you should be doing uh, in terms of your recovery, in terms of your nutrition, in terms of your technical adaptations, in terms of your psychological interventions, Everything should be directed towards a particular goal within a particular training phase. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so all that will be linked to. And uh, but yeah, let's get into the tools themselves. Which tools in the phase, in the competition phase, when you want to maximize recovery and performance, what tools can be useful? Well. One of the tools is called uh, nutrition, and that is very, very, very important. There is a second tool which is extremely important, and it's called sleep. Uh, I know triathletes enjoy toys. I know triathletes generally love gadgets. But before any toys, before any gadgets, nutrition and sleep are the most important recovery tools that we have. If we don't get those two right, anything else that we might do in terms of recovery is going to be useless. Once we have our nutrition right and once we get our sleep right, then we can start looking at other strategies. And those other strategies include massage, Compression garments, um, hydrotherapy, those three strategies in particular can have a small but positive effect on the quality of recovery. So they won't give us uh, any great improvement in our recovery, but at least they won't hinder our recovery. So the, at the very least, we are not going to get a negative effect from those three strategies. Massage, compression garments, hydrotherapy. And on the other hand, they can give us a small benefit in terms of recovery. With food and sleep, uh, just to clarify, sleep in particular, I assume that you should optimize no matter where you are. You should, you should never 
try to cut yourself short on sleep to get a better adaptation correct me if i'm wrong but that would be my understanding nutrition i would kind of assume the same thing but maybe you have a different opinion there that in certain phases you might want to withhold nutrition for a while after sessions i i don't know so so should those two be periodized as well in terms of the recovery or are those kind of you always want to uh, do the best you can with the nutrition and the sleep from a recovery standpoint uh in my opinion sleep is mandatory uh trying to optimize it is mandatory throughout the entire season with nutrition we can play a little bit more uh we can use a periodized uh approach to nutrition and that's part of the paper you mentioned before uh it's a topic that has been covered recently by by experts in sports nutrition like uh Louis Burke or or uh, Asker Jokendrup or Trent Stellingworth and yes we can we can manipulate the intake before and after training in order to try to enhance our adaptations and in order to try to uh, manipulate the 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 body composition of the athlete at different points in time that yeah that said yeah we can manipulate nutrition but again i wouldn't try to play with how much sleep we are getting i would always provide the athlete with enough sleep no matter what phase of the season we are in Got it. Yep. We talked about periodized nutrition with both Louis Burke and uh, John Hawley on the podcast before. So the listeners can go and listen to that. And uh, yeah, that's uh, part of the periodized nutrition. The, for example, things like train low strategies. I was, I was kind of asking more from the perspective of uh, recovering after such session. But I, I now, yeah, I realized that to do that, those sort of train low sessions after certain sessions you also probably will withhold carbohydrates at least so so that means that you're not always maximizing your your nutrition so completely uh, understand where you're coming from with that uh, then the other follow-up that i have is uh, around things like the uh, the normatech boots and and similar products do you see any value in them uh, yes i do i think uh, normatech boots have enough not necessarily normatech that's a brand but uh intermittent uh, pneumatic compression uh, there is enough scientific evidence behind their use again they won't give you uh, an extremely positive effect it won't improve performance uh, in, a, in, a, in a very important way uh, they won't give you a, a, a big effect in terms of recovery but they will give you a small positive effect so they can add to the uh, to the to the recovery process and therefore they can be considered a tool that might be useful when we are preparing for competition or when we are in a phase in which we want to emphasize recovery after a particular training session or before a particular training session so that we can uh, approach that particular training session with fresh legs right and finally on the topic of recovery uh, how much recovery would uh, you typically or how would you plan the return to training after races for example with the triathletes that you coached hmm. um, we published a study on a case study on an echo um 
on his recovery following Ironman races. So I've, I, I had a I had a blood check for him after six races in which he finished either first or second. So I think we had six races, uh, three of which he won and three of which he finished second. And what we saw was that his blood values at least were back to normal within five to eight days after an Ironman event. Uh, does that mean that he is ready to get back into normal training? Well, in his case, yes. Uh, he recovered very, very quickly. Uh, and if needed before a subsequent race, he could get back to normal training within one week after an Ironman event. I don't know whether that's the case for every triathlete out there. Maybe some of them have... Um, uh, a slower recovery. I don't think there is uh, sufficient scientific evidence out there to give general recommendations. But I think uh, in the case of elite triathletes, they can go back to normal training. But normal training is usually progressive training uh, after one week or, or 10 days after an Ironman event. If that Ironman event uh, represents the end of the season, then they would go to their off-season phase, in which, as, as we discussed before, I would give them a couple of weeks of no exercise, followed by a couple of weeks of non-specific physical activity. Great. Yeah, I, I just remembered an anecdote that Malcolm Brown, former coach of uh, the Brownlee brothers, uh, told me, which was about two marathon runners that, that he coached, I believe, that ran a 215-220 marathon at uh, at in scotland i think at some point and uh, and just to illustrate the difference the individuality in recovery he said that uh, one guy one of them was disappointed with his time and he ran a marathon the the next week uh, so within one week he did another marathon and, and set a better time that he was more happy with mm. uh, the other runner still four weeks after the marathon he that, that was the time when he felt that okay now i'm ready to to resume training again and these were similar age similar uh, ability level so so it just goes to show that individuality has a has a huge part to play there. Mm -hmm. And I think it also has to do with uh, how fast you go um, in relation to how fast you can go. What I mean by this is that an elite triathlete doing only a marathon might be able to run that marathon in, let's say, 2.25 or 2.30. But when that athlete runs an Ironman marathon, they are going to run in, in 2.50, 2.45, 2.55, 2.55, So they are running much slower than they can actually run. So the muscle damage that they are going to uh, suffer is not as much or as bad as it would be if they had done only a marathon. That is my view and that is my approach. Some people might not agree with it, but in my experience, the recovery after uh, an Ironman is faster because you are not inducing so much damage because you are not running very fast to compared to how fast you could actually run that marathon race. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Absolutely. And uh, that's, I think, it for recovery. So uh, let's move on to discuss tapering. 
And uh, first, perhaps if you can start by describing what is known as the general uh, guidelines from what we what we have in terms of scientific evidence about uh, about how to plan a good taper. Well, the first point would be to define what a taper is. And uh, a taper is a phase of reduced training that some athletes might undertake in the lead up to a major competition. Sometimes we hear athletes say that they are tapering and they are actually training as much as they were training before or they are training more than they were training before because they uh, they they look at the competition approaching, they get stressed and they start going to training more often. So they end up training more. and. What I mean by providing this definition is to make people understand that you don't always taper simply because you are two weeks before competition. You might decide not to use a taper. The taper is a strategy that you might or might not use in the lead up to a competition. If you decide to do a taper, then you need to understand what a taper is. And a taper is a phase characterized by a reduced training load in the lead up to that competition. If you are not reducing the training load in a progressive manner, then you are not tapering. So um, what are the usual characteristics of a taper? Uh, according to a meta-analysis that we have done and some other meta-analysis that have been done on team sports and also on strength-oriented athletes, there are some general recommendations that can be provided for athletes uh, when they design their taper. And those recommendations include reducing the training volume by 50 to 60 percent uh, compared to the training volume of the mesocycle before the taper to maintain training intensity and usually to maintain the percentage of high-intensity training that they were doing before, to maintain training frequency real, relatively high. That said, some athletes might end up reducing the training volume by taking out a couple of training sessions. And in that case, they are also reducing the training frequency. But as a general rule, the training volume should not be decreased at the expense of training frequency. And the ideal duration would be somewhere between 10 and 14 days. Some athletes might decide to go longer. They might go to three or even four weeks. Some athletes might decide to go shorter. But the general recommendation that came out of that meta-analysis is that a two-week taper is going to work for the majority of athletes. Those would be the general recommendations when we don't have a clue on how to design our taper in the lead up to a competition. But of course, then we need to individualize based on a trial and error approach. Some athletes might need a little bit longer, some might need a little bit shorter, some might need a little bit more volume, some might need a little bit less volume. So we need to play a little bit around those numbers that uh, I provided you as a, as a general guide. Yeah, one, one aspect of that individualization and adjusting some uh, variables that uh, some coaches uh, prescribe is to, for the more kind of slow twitch uh, dominant athletes, they recommend taking a shorter taper and reducing volume a bit less. 
whereas for the more fast pitch athletes they they recommend uh reducing that they, they need uh, a stronger reduction in in training load in general and in, in volume and and maybe the duration of the uh, of the taper is that something that you would agree with and no i wouldn't if you ask my opinion uh it's going to be based on the scientific evidence and there is no scientific evidence indicating that uh the athlete or the event are going to determine the duration of the taper so what will determine the ideal duration of the taper is the athlete's adaptation and disadaptation profile. And that is not going to depend on your muscle fibers. It's not going to depend on whether you run a marathon or you run 100 meters, on whether you are a sprint distance triathlete or whether you are an Ironman triathlete. It's absolutely individual. So within Ironman, you might have athletes who adapt quickly and lose adaptation quickly. You might have athletes who take a long time to adapt and lose adaptation quickly. Athletes who take a long time to adapt and maintain adaptation for a long time. And within sprint distance, you might have a variety of adaptation and disadaptation uh, types. So those Adaptation and disadaptation profiles are going to determine what taper duration you choose and what type of taper you choose, not the event that you are doing and not the type of muscle fibers that you have. Mm, okay. And uh, and so the, the, the trial and error <coughs> approach is simply after the race evaluating with the athlete how they, how they performed uh, compared to how you think that they could perform and whether it was a success or not and then you then you adjust based on that is that the, the general process uh that would be too simple and it wouldn't be very precise because maybe the athlete is physiologically and physically perfectly ready for a great performance but psychologically uh the athlete has not been able to cope with the stress of competition and then there is a counter performance and we think that our taper was completely wrong and that that might not be the case so we need to assess the performance capacity of the athlete in training during the taper process first of all to see if everything is where we expected it to be and secondly to determine what is the performance potential of the athlete then that potential might or might not become a reality on competition day but if we only focus on what happened on competition day we might be missing something regarding the adaptation process to the taper so mm. my recommendation would be not to focus only on what happened on race day but to focus also on how the taper has been progressing and how the fitness and performance potential of the athlete has been evolving throughout the taper. So, so you would look at some at performances in some benchmark workouts, for example. For example, or you can assess the uh, the perception of effort to a heart rate, or the perception of effort to a given. Uh, power output or a given swimming velocity or a given running uh, velocity and that will give you an idea on whether the athlete is running uh, easier at a given speed or feels 
the same perception of effort for a faster speed, etc. Yeah. In terms of the shape of the taper, I know that uh, I think your meta-analysis uh, has uh, it talks about the different uh, different shapes. So you can have a step taper or a progressive linear taper or even exponential taper. There are, those are some of the forms that I remember uh, you mentioning. Can you explain those a little bit? What sort of and what's the practical application of them? Hmm. Well, the different uh, types of taper were described in a paper that we wrote in 2003 in Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise. And they were divided in, in four major types. One was a step taper in which you simply decide to um, approach the taper by reducing your training by a given percentage. So let's say for the next two weeks, uh, I'm going to train 50% of what I have been training in the past mesocycle. So that would be a step taper in which there is no progression in the in the reduction of the training load. Then there was the linear taper in which, as the uh, name implies, you reduce the training load or the training volume uh, linearly. So let's say you are running on average 10 kilometers a day in the previous mesocycle and during the taper, you are going to be running 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, and so on until the day before competition. That would be a linear reduction in the training load. And then you can reduce exponentially with a fast decay or with a slow decay. And that means that you are going to initially reduce the training load a little bit more, and then that that reduction line is going to... Um, is going to slow down. There is going to be a stabilization of the training load a little bit closer as we get closer to the competition day. So those would be the, the general approaches. In the meta-analysis, we could only compare a progressive strategy, which included a linear decrement of the training load and also an exponential decrement of the training load versus a step taper because the scientific literature didn't have enough evidence out there to compare the other methods. And when we compare the progressive, again, including linear and exponential drops versus the uh, step taper, we saw that the linear decrement was probably, uh, sorry, the progressive decrement was probably more effective, but the step taper was probably a very useful strategy for cycling in particular. And that is something that from an experience, a, a personal experience point of view, I have experimented in, um, in uh, Grand Tours. So in other words, what I mean is that a progressive taper, whether linear or exponential, might be a perfectly valid approach for a cyclist to prepare for a one-day competition or for a three, four, five-day competition. But when we are dealing with a Grand Tour, that is a, a three-week race, in that case, maybe a step taper might be uh, a very good strategy. All right. That is very interesting. And, and in terms of the, the volume reduction of uh, around 50% as the, the starting point from the scientific literature, when we're talking about a progressive taper, would you simply 
average out the volume over, let's say, a two-week taper for argument's sake, and uh, well, you have a then, then you have an, an average for your daily volume, and and you would compare that with the average for the the mesocycle before the taper, and that's how you calculate the the fifty percent, basically. Yeah, basically, you are. Uh, assessing the area under the curve of the previous mesocycle versus the area under the curve of the of the taper phase. So how much training yeah. you are doing in total in the previous mesocycle and how much training you are doing in total um, during the taper. Yeah, but but then you need to compare yeah, the actual duration of the correct in relation to the to the number of days or the number of weeks. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Uh, and uh, there have been some, I think the Bent Rennestad and his lab have done some interesting works on taper more recently in, for example, there was a case study, I believe, with uh, doing five days of hard interval workouts and then tapering for for hard for one week, I think, uh, a step taper and, and then seeing some really good results. Of course, that was an N equals one case study. But I'm not sure. I think they have done some other studies with with more athletes as well with that sort of uh, very intense intensity focused taper uh, or block before uh, a step reduction in volume and intensity. Uh, do you have opinions on that? Yes, I was involved in that uh, case study with uh, two mountain bikers, um, and the idea was that basically when you had two races in close proximity within your competition calendar. Uh, how would you approach that? Uh, would you have enough time to to add a training block in between two races, or you are better off doing a phase of uh, very high intensity training for a few days and then a mini taper in the lead up to the competition? And that that uh, approach was particularly useful for this particular elite mountain biker. So it's not very different from a block periodization approach. But when you don't have enough time in between two competitions uh, to include uh, an accumulation, uh, transmutation, and a realization block, then that might be uh, a very good approach. A few days of high-intensity interval training followed by a few days of relative recovery. And that worked really well. Yeah, perfect. And finally... Besides the, the training structure that we have talked about now, what other considerations uh, are important to have for the athlete or the coach during taper? Um, you need to remember that you are preparing for a competition, so you are not resting and not doing anything. Some Sometimes coaches uh, think that the taper is all about doing almost nothing, you know, go go to the swimming pool and, and take a bath, uh, get on the bike and, and go for a joyride. Uh, and that's not the idea. You are still training very hard. You are still doing a lot of work because when you taper off a lot of work, you are still doing a lot of work. <laughs> so 60% of a lot is still a lot. And 40% of a lot is still a lot. So... The taper is not just uh, showing up and doing almost nothing. You show up and you train. And when you do quality training, you do quality training. And you are uh, usually simulating competition speeds and you are simulating competition power outputs, etc. Uh, 
the more you can focus on recovery during the taper, the better. At the moment, we are doing some research with uh, with a PhD student. In this case, we are doing this in, in rugby players, in professional rugby players, about whether adding recovery strategies during the taper is going to enhance the recovery. And that seems to be the case, particularly for athletes who uh, start the, the taper phase with a higher accumulated fatigue. So those athletes who finish the pre-taper training in an overreach state or in a severe fatigue state will benefit from the taper and will have an additional benefit from adding some of those recovery strategies that we mentioned before and that have proven to be useful, such as uh, massage, uh, hydration, uh, sorry, um, hydrotherapy, compression garments, um, intermittent pneumatic compression, etc. All right, perfect. And and, uh, and, 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 and and excuse me, there is one important aspect during the taper. Athletes should pay very careful attention to matching their energy intake to their reduced energy expenditure. So they are training less and therefore they should be eating less because otherwise there is a risk of increasing their body mass uh, at the worst possible time. That is when they are preparing for the most important competition of the season. Yeah. Perfect. And uh, uh, that's it for tapering for, for now. But uh, as mentioned, you have the only book existing on tapering. So uh, I'll link to that as well in the show notes for listeners that might be interested in in learning more and now one final topic that i want to get into is about the uh, training adaptations and and also detraining so the time course of those two uh, those two things and uh, and also how they differ between different different energy systems or different levels of intensity if you will can you go into that a little bit well um once you stop training you are going to lose adaptations because uh, training-induced adaptations are temporary. They are not permanent, unfortunately. So when you train, you adapt, and when you stop training, you disadapt. And everything is going to end up disappearing. There are different time frames for losing adaptations that we have achieved during intensive training, but... Uh, at the end of a no training period or a training cessation period, we are going to end up losing everything that we have achieved in previous training phases. Uh, normally, elite athletes are not going to stop more than two, three, four weeks. But even within that short period, we know that there are some things that are going to disappear. And those things can be somehow uh, grouped into three big categories. One would be uh, what happens in terms of cardiovascular adaptations. The second one would be what happens in terms of uh, metabolic adaptations. And the third one would be what happens in terms of neuromuscular adaptations. And within those short time frames of two to four weeks of training cessation, we are going to lose adaptations in all of those, in, in, in all three uh, of those systems. 
the cardiovascular adaptations are going to start disappearing because of the loss in, in, in blood volume, which is going to be almost immediate. When an athlete stops training, there is going to be an almost immediate loss of blood volume. As a result, there is going to be a reduction of uh, stroke volume. And um, after a few days, that is going to end up inducing a loss in VO2 max, in maximal oxygen uptake. There is going to be a loss in the, uh, in the threshold, and there are going to be a few other markers that are going to impair our cardiovascular capacity. In terms of the metabolic disadaptations or the, or the metabolic detraining, what happens is that we have exactly the same characteristics of a metabolic syndrome in a small scale. A metabolic syndrome is characterized by physical inactivity, overweight, obesity, hypertension, dyslipemia, um, insulin resistance, or even diabetes. Well, all those things are going to happen in an elite athlete within four weeks of training cessation at a small scale. But those changes are going to take place. The difference is that in the case of the metabolic syndrome, this is multiplied by years and years of physical inactivity. But the loss of adaptations that the elite athlete will undergo in terms of uh, metabolic uh, system are going to be exactly the same as those of the metabolic syndrome. And from a neuromuscular point of view, there is going to be some changes uh, that will appear after about three weeks. And in that sense, we also wrote a meta-analysis about the loss of neuromuscular adaptations. And what we see is that within or after three weeks of training cessation, everything is going to start disappearing. And when I mean everything, I mean um, concentric strength, eccentric strength, static strength, um, dynamic strength, power, submaximal, maximal, everything is going to start disappearing after three weeks. Because there is going to be a loss in the fiber diameter after three to four weeks, and because after two, three, four weeks there is going to be a loss in the in the velocity of transmission of neural impulses. So those two things are going to work against the ability of the athlete to produce force, power, and everything that has to do with the, uh, with the production of high speed and high quality movement. That's a great summary. And uh, to follow up on that, so uh, what are the implications that this knowledge can have when it comes to, to training? I can think of some examples. Well, one of them would be, for example, the, the off season that we are, the vacation after the season that we already talked about. But also there might be situations when an athlete is injured when knowing about these things uh, 
can have uh, can be beneficial like if you can cross train to maintain at least your cardiovascular adaptations by doing some water uh, running or similar are there other uh, applications and uh, things that we should consider yes of course in the off season we need to decide how much uh, we want to allow an athlete to detrain that's why I decided to do two weeks of no training and then two weeks of other types of physical activities because I don't want the full loss that takes place over four weeks. But I can afford the losses that might take place within two weeks if I then start doing some other physical activity. Uh, so the physical activities or the, the type of things we can do when we want to retain adaptations in case of injury or if we don't want to lose too much during vacation periods uh, include, for example, uh, a reduced training strategy. And that means doing some training, less, but maintaining some training. And in that case, if the focus is on retaining adaptations, intensity is very important. So we might reduce the training volume by a lot, but we might need to maintain training intensity. So doing some high-intensity intervals, even if it's uh, a low-volume set once or twice a week, might help retain some of those adaptations. Another strategy would be cross-training. And that means doing something that is not what we usually do in training. But in that case, we need to know that for elite athletes, cross-training is only useful as a strategy to retain adaptations It is as, if it is a similar mode type of training. So for a marathon runner, it, it would be useless to go uh, rock climbing because it's not a similar mode type of training from a biomechanical and from a physiological point of view. But for that marathon runner going cross-country skiing, then that would be a, a useful strategy because it's a similar mode cross-training, both biomechanically and physiologically. Another strategy or another aspect that we can keep in mind is the idea of cross-transfer effect or cross-education effect. And that is the transfer of strength training gains from the ipsilateral member to the contralateral member. And what that means is that if I train my left leg for strength, I am gaining some strength also in my right leg. So if I am injured in one leg, there is no problem for me to keep training the other leg to help the injured leg retaining to some extent, some of the training-induced adaptations. And finally, there is a, a concept that was uh, proven a few years ago, in uh, 2014, I think it was, uh, showing that the, uh, the cerebral cortex might have a huge impact on retaining training adaptations. Uh, so only the, uh, the, the, the fact of thinking about doing an exercise even if you don't do the exercise, you simply mimicking your head that you are doing an exercise might help you avoid some of the detraining effects of inactivity or the detraining consequences of uh, training cessation. Those are a lot of really interesting strategies. So, so thank you for for that. And uh, we're 
Approaching the end of the interview here, I have uh, three rapid fire questions that we need to get through. But before we go to them, uh, is there anything else? I know you're also very big on strength training, for example, uh, but, but anything else that you're very interested in that you just want to give a brief highlight or piece of advice of to, to the audience? Well, recently we have been doing uh, quite a bit of work on strength training for endurance performance. And I think the evidence out there is uh, strong enough to suggest that athletes involved in endurance sports should start, should, uh, if they are not doing so yet, they should seriously consider the possibility of doing strength training. Firstly, because it's going to help them prevent injuries. Strength training is the most useful exercise strategy to prevent injuries. And secondly, because it's going to have a positive impact on efficiency of locomotion and therefore on performance. They don't have to do anything super fancy in the gym. Uh, Some simple exercises involving the same muscle groups and similar muscle movements as what they would be doing in their particular sport. One or two sets, three to four exercises a couple times a week should be more than enough to develop adaptations that are going to have a positive impact on injury prevention on the one hand and performance on the other hand. That would be for developing those qualities. For maintaining those qualities, once the competitive season starts, one session per week would be enough to maintain the adaptations that they have previously achieved. And to develop the qualities, what sort of weight and rep range recommendations Mm. would you give? It is important to use heavy weights. And that means that athletes need to practice the technique of the exercises. So first they need to learn how to do the exercise correctly before they can focus on on heavy lifting. But it is important to know that heavy lifting uh, is the most effective strategy if they want to improve uh, the efficiency of locomotion and if they want to improve performance. And also once they are strong enough, once they have a musculoskeletal system that is able to cope with the type of impact, it would be good to add some plyometric training uh, on top of the uh, strength training in the gym. All right, perfect. Uh, Now let's move into the rapid fire questions. So these are just one sentence answers. And uh, the first question is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource related to endurance sports? Uh, endurance training science and practice <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> and <laughs> what's your favorite piece of gear or equipment uh, my bicycles and I have four or five of them my surfboards and my automatic Swiss watches and finally what's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success I would say keeping a good balance between solid periods of uh, intensive work and leisure time and training daily or almost daily th- throughout my life. I've, um, I don't think I've ever been completely out of shape. 
Right, great. And finally, where can listeners follow you, keep up with your work? Is there anything that you got going on, any projects that you want to mention? Feel free to do so. Uh, well, they can follow me on Twitter and they can follow me on my blog, although I haven't been very active in my blog uh, for the past uh, few months. Uh, and also I have a Facebook page that I only use for uh, professional purposes. All right, great. We'll have links to all of that in the episode descriptions. Now, thank you so much, Inigo, for coming on. It was a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, yeah, uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you for the opportunity. I hope that you enjoyed that interview with uh, Inigo. As usual, you can find all of the show notes on scientifictriathlon.com with links to Inigo's website and his Twitter and ResearchGate profiles and all of his books, including, as mentioned at the top of the show, Endurance Training, Science and Practice, my favorite book in endurance sports, but also he has books on tapering and a book on recovery, which uh, where uh, Chris Houseworth is the main author, but uh, Inigo is co-author. So those will be linked to and also some of the papers we mentioned, including the big review on periodization in uh, sports and also the tapering papers and meta-analysis that we discussed. On Thursday, we have another Q&A coming out. And then next week on Monday, I interview Dr. Mark Burnley on the topics of critical power, VO2 kinetics, which includes the importance of a good and specific warm-up, and the different fatigue mechanisms that cause us to slow down, which vary depending on which intensity domain you are working in. If you are looking for training plans or coaching services, go to scientifictriathlon.com and check out the information we have about our services and products and uh, you won't be disappointed if you select either one of those options i'm sure thank you finally to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com go and take their free online sweat test to get a personalized hydration strategy and get 15 percent off your order with the promo code that triathlon show one five and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with a promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart, and keep loving triathlon.